you might go to pull it out and use it and it doesn't come out. So I think that being skinnier is actually more useful for penetration. I either believe it or don't believe it. I don't give two f- but I am telling you right now. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. The Blue Collar Plebcast is brought to you by Punchplate. Punchplate at coddle.co sells a series of high-quality, American-made 304 stainless steel backup seed phrase plates. Punchplates are compact, affordable, proven to be durable through independent testing, and easy to use. They look great, too. It has never been easier to own your own money. Punchplate makes it affordable to more securely break up your seed phrase into multiple pieces. Why pay a third party for multisig when you can cheaply create your own fragmented and redundant system? Don't accept holding an IOU. Protect yourself and your family. Use Punchplate. Check out coddle.co. Note that coddle is a C word. We are live. What's up, LC? Yo. How was your week? Fucking sparkling. How was yours? I had a very good week. I have an announcement. I'm proud to announce I've joined the Meme Factory. They approached me in my Twitter DMs. I got in a Telegram group. I did a YouTube meetup. It was really dope. And they sent me some swag. You're fired from the podcast. (laughs) Speaking of memes, I know that um, you're the person to talk to about this. There was a meme controversy today regarding stolen memes. Did you see that? With who? I don't know. Somebody... I was following, posted a, a meme, and I retweeted it. And then Joey from Joey Canada tweets, Joey tweets. So that's a stolen meme. And it turned into like this big thing. Really? Yeah. I kind of get it. My introduction to memes was like back around 2015. I didn't know what memes were. So I collect things. I used to download these things and keep them in a folder. And when something topical would happen, I would post it. And the first time I got introduced to memes was I, I stole Hodlinot's meme, and he got pissed at me. So, <laughs> so he DM'd me. This is my first run-in with him before, like, the whole lightning torch thing. He said, I don't mean to be a cunt, quote, but it's not cool you're posting the meme I worked hard on. And I didn't really get it. I thought he was just being an ass. So <laughs> I was like, I, I thought we were all on the same side, but I, I didn't understand how memes worked or how much work really went into them. And now I kind of get it. And I wonder if some of the people posting stolen memes, they know what they're doing now, or they're just kind of like noobs and they don't really understand it. So I, I don't know. I wonder if we should be gentle with them on first offense. What do you think? You're, you're the meme expert. I mean, I don't think I'm a meme expert, but I will say... You're like the godfather of memes. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to take somebody's meme, at least tag them. That's kind of my take on it. I post a ton of memes that I didn't make. But the only memes that I post that I didn't make that I don't credit the maker is if I get it from like a public channel on Telegram and I have no fucking idea who made it. Because they're just channels of people that just gather memes from all around the internet and post them in a public channel. But is it possible somebody comes into Bitcoin, Twitter, and they have no idea what's going on? They see these cool things and they don't really understand what a meme even is or that they're stealing them? I think that's possible because I've done Yeah, but my thing is this. There's a half-life to it, right? People don't get pissed, generally, if you save their meme and you post it 
six months later or something, something comes up and it seems relevant and you post it. People don't care. But when somebody posts a meme and like two hours later, it shows up on somebody else's page. Then you're just being a fucking dickhead because you saw it on their feed. And instead of just retweeting it, you like went through all the process of saving it, starting a new tweet and posting that. That's that area where it starts to look like it was dishonest, in my opinion. Oh, sounds to me like the jury has spoken. And I'm sorry, guy, but Elsie thinks you're a dickhead. It's just the it <laughs> I think most people are a dickhead, so it's not a very a, exclusive club. Yeah, I, I don't have a movie take this week per se. Do you? Wow, just drop me right on the spot there, huh? A movie take this week for what is it for top movies? Well, when we present, I think we should have the option to present every week. You can take it or leave it. But we're presenting a movie that we think is one of the greatest of all time, and we need to defend that point if we Sna- present a movie. Snatch. Snatch. Yep. Okay. You were telling me about this because it had something to do with gypsies. It is a Guy Ritchie film. Okay. It has Jason Statham in it. It has Brad Pitt in it. Probably a couple other famous people. Set in Britain. When uh, did it come out? I want to say the 90s. Let me ask Google. It's amazing how on our podcast, our Google searches happen so quickly. 2000. Okay. 23 years old. It was done in 2000. Has a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, which shows you that Rotten Tomatoes is fucking useless. Basically, this guy owes money to the mob. And he uh, convinces the head of the mob to place a bet on this bare knuckle boxer that he promotes he's a boxing promoter the bare knuckle boxer is brad pitt he's a gypsy the gypsy bare knuckle boxer that speaks barely recognizable english but it's just a fantastic film i really liked guy Ritchie's film style up until like maybe the last 10 years um that last movie he put out kind of sucked what are some other guy Ritchie films i couldn't name another one uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels was a good one. Okay. He has that film style that when you watch a Guy Ritchie film, you know it's a Guy Ritchie film. And I feel like anybody who puts out a movie like that, right? Like you have the Coen brothers are like that. The Coen brothers put out a movie and you know the Coen brothers made that movie. You're looking at me like you don't know who the Coen brothers are. I know it's not the people that made The Matrix. Jesus Christ. Uh, the Coen brothers made The Big Lebowski, Fargo, uh, Simple Man. The hell's that other one? Something Arizona. Either way, they have a very specific film style. So you like Guy Ritchie's because he has a specific style? Not because he has a specific style, but there's an enjoyment to be had with a director that has a style when somebody doesn't have to tell you who directed it. Just by the movie, you know who directed it. How can you tell who directed it? What's in this movie that you can tell it's him? It's the way he shoots it. It's very, like, scatter and busy and all over the place and lots of action. And he just has a very unique style of direction. So he has ADHD. Probably. Examples of people like that are him, the Coen brothers. Oh, I had the other one, but you kept talking. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Editor's note, on a two-person talk show, Elsie cannot concentrate if the other person speaks. 
they have a specific style and you watch the movie and you know that person did it, right? Oh, who's that black dude that makes movies? More than Spike one black Lee. dude that makes movies. Stop it. Spike Lee. A Spike Lee film, right? Spike Lee joint. Yeah, that. So was Brad Pitt looking hot in this movie? Is that why you liked it? Super hot. Nice. <laughs> it is a great movie, though. If you have the time, watch it. It's a fucking great movie. Definitely one of the top 10 of all time. Has like this dark comedy, action, crime feel to it. I'll watch it this week. No, you won't. I will. It's on my list of things to watch, so I'll get back to you next week on this. It's very good. Actually, probably one of Brad Pitt's best performances. Today at dinner, somebody brought up that new movie that came out that's controversial about child sex trafficking. The Sound of Freedom. And it's kind of awkward because I wanted to say something about it. So when they brought it up at dinner, I started giggling because I was planning on saying something to you about it. And I was like, I didn't mean to giggle, but it's just I'm going to talk about it later. And they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> but my hot take on this is I don't think anybody's going to go see it. It already outperformed Indiana Jones on its opening weekend. It's made Indiana 18 Jones million is a big already. Steaming pile of shit. But it's made 18 million in its debut. Oh. And it's well, an independent wrong. film. Well, then I'm wrong, but let me tell you the, the rationale behind this. <laughs> Hit me. I think there's people that say, oh, there's a conspiracy theory about pedophilia. So that's like most of society. So they're not going to go see it. And I feel like the other half that says, well, maybe this, there's something to this. And I think it's an interesting thing to learn about. They might not want to go because it just might be too real to be entertaining. If somebody wanted to be entertained by like real, just hard, terrible things, they just go on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know how you'd go watch a movie to see something horrible. It doesn't sound fun to me. So I think the reason people are going to see it is because it's not like most films that come out that say based on a true story. The movie is written about an FBI agent. And the FBI agent that the movie is about was heavily involved with making the movie. Does that make it more fun? No, it makes it believable. Your first point was people will say, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. But when you have actual headlines from the media from when he quit the FBI to go do this, and the guy is actively involved with making the movie and promoting the movie, it's hard to stand on any kind of ground and say... Oh, well, it's based on a true story, but who really knows? Yeah, but the half of society that thinks it's a conspiracy theory still thinks so. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, all the all the uh, headlines that are coming out about it. Here's why I think you're wrong. I should say, here's why I know you're wrong. Sentiment has changed in the country. Or is in the process of changing in the country. People tend to question what mainstream media has to say about things. If mainstream media comes out in a coordinated attack on something, it usually piques people's interest. And that's exactly what we've seen when this movie came out. This movie came out in every major outlet, Rolling Stone, the New York Times, all put out roughly the same article. Yeah, that, oh, it's for boomers with brain worms that are conspiracy QAnon theorists and almost verbatim the same article from all these different outlets. When you start to see things like that, are you going to have blue-haired ladies there, you know, with their uh, trans rights shirts on? No. But I don't think they made that movie thinking at any point that any of those people were going to show up. 
I think it has two things that work for it. It talks about a very hot topic being child sex trafficking, which is more in the news now than it's ever been and much less of a conspiracy theory now than it's ever been. And it's a Christian based movie. They're doing a lot of showings at churches Really? where if you reach out to the director, they'll send you a copy of it, even though it's still in theaters to play at your church to do a viewing. A lot of people attend church regularly. So you have not only this big Christian conservative base, but you also have all the people that have been watching all the, you know, Epstein changed the way people look at child slavery, right? Prior to Epstein getting arrested, it was just a conspiracy theory. And then Epstein got arrested and all that shit came out and Maxwell went on trial and all that shit came out. And then Epstein killed himself in prison and all that shit came out. It's on the tip of everybody's tongue that even if they were skeptical of it before, if they had even a hint of being even a little bit open-minded, if evidence should produce itself, all those people know that it's the real deal now. Mm. So I think the movie was set to be released in 2018 and it didn't happen. And I think it would have fucking tanked in 2018, if I'm being honest. But in today's environment, I think it has a real chance to do big numbers. Hmm. Well, Disney owned it at one point. 18 million in one week? 18 million on its opening weekend, yeah. And it's in half the amount of theaters that uh, Indiana Jones is. Yeah. It's not really action-based. They don't really have very recognizable stars. It's just all about the story, huh? Jim Caviezel, who plays the main guy is pretty famous. He played Jesus in Passion of the Christ, which was a friggin' huge movie. Super interesting stories about that guy, too. If you have a minute to jump down a rabbit hole, he got struck by lightning in the final scene of The Passion of the Christ. For real? For real, like, while they were filming. He was, like, standing on a hilltop, and everything rang around him, and pow, he got hit with lightning. It was fucking wild. It fucked him up for, like, a decade. He had to, like, keep going to the doctors and getting surgeries and being on a bunch of medication to, like, help with his heart because his heart was all fucked up from a giant pop of electricity. Kind of freaky. Yeah, pretty wild. But, yeah, he's he's pretty famous. He's been in a couple of movies besides Passion of the Christ, but Passion of the Christ was a huge box office hit. I don't know if you remember when that came out. It was huge. And he was the main actor in that movie, so it definitely has some facial recognition as far as actors but besides that being like an independent film that's hard to do in today's world i don't have the stomach for movies that are like showing a lot of pain i'm not big on stuff like that but honestly that's like the only thing my wife can watch and like pay attention to she has like this morbid curiosity that's the books she reads the movies she watches the documentaries she watches are all about the worst possible shit that happens in human nature. So I'm trying to set up a date night to go watch it with her. I can't watch that stuff. I'll just be on TikTok watching people die all day. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit something. Besides being a reformed meme thief, I kind of messed up last episode and I was talking about the Good Samaritan laws. In my closing argument, I mixed up ordinary negligence and gross negligence. I guess that the Good Samaritan laws protect physicians from ordinary but not gross negligence. But I think my point still stands that that's subjective. Yeah, I think you're covered. I think it went over most people's heads. Good. 
Yeah, our listeners aren't that smart. They're listening to us. Exactly. <laughs> None of them are getting letters in the mail from NASA to go to work, you know? All right. We love you all, even though you're stupid. Yeah. And no offense. All in, all offense intended. So I brought up the 9-11 thing last week, remember? Yes. And you said you were kind of glad I wasn't questioning the 9-11 narrative because you knew somebody who unfortunately passed away in 9-11, right? Not the 9-11 narrative as a whole. Just uh-huh. there's a certain conspiracy theory out there that nobody died on the planes. Oh, okay. That like the planes were empty. Whatever. I got you. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. Do I believe that a plane hit the World Trade Center and the World Trade Center dropped? Absolutely. I would never go against my government. It's different than saying the plane caused it to drop, but yeah. Yes. Whatever the official narrative is, yes. That's exactly what happened. If that's you right. think otherwise... Just in case anybody's listening, that's what we think happened too. You absolutely belong in Guantanamo if you think something else happened. <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you, about a year ago we talked, and you said you got a, a well-designed license? Yeah. I've been meaning to follow up with you and see if you've been using that and how that's worked out for you. Yeah, not as much as I'd like to, but yeah. Professional life is, I don't know, scrambled at the moment. We have this thing that we're trying to do with, I don't know, I don't know where my professional life is going, to be honest. Like, I really want to keep doing what I'm doing, but at the same time, we have this idea that we want to do with our farm. And uh, I really feel like that's my calling. I just don't know when it's going to become a reality. So. That's got to be a common sentiment. People don't really know where their professional lives are going in, in fiat business world. Especially today. Yeah. Uncertain times. Once we think we have all the rules figured out, then they change yeah i mean essentially we want to turn our farm into a non-profit and run a charity just trying to figure out the most viable way to do that can one make a living on a non-profit charity some of the highest paid people are uh ceos of non-profits huh well that's weird but it seems important to understand yeah, basically, we'll, we want to like grow and produce everything we grow and produce and give it all away. We want to make organic, fresh produce and eggs and meat available to people who don't have those things available to them. So soup kitchens, homeless shelters, food pantries, stuff like that. I have had a point in my life where I had to eat out of a food pantry. And when you eat out of a food pantry, you basically eat jarred peanut butter, hard bread, dry cereal, canned vegetables. There's not a lot of good food to eat. You basically get the bottom of the barrel mass produced junk because that's what people donate, right? So we want to be able to come in and fill that hole and offer people who may be in a tough situation in their life the opportunity to put a decent meal on the table. Because it's not not easy when you have to go in somewhere like a food pantry for food and you're trying to feed a child. That sounds awesome, but are you saying the state would subsidize such a thing? Not the state, but I have a close personal friend of mine who is a financial advisor to a rather wealthy sector of 
the population and he was the one actually that encouraged me to do it. He said, I have clients that all the time are looking for somewhere to park a tax deductible donation. So if you go to do it, you let me know and I'll send all my clients to you. So we kind of want to do that. And then on the other end of it, offer like farming classes. My kids have done them before in the past where they go to like an established farm as kids and they'll show them how to plant something or they'll show them how to identify leaves or they'll show them a whole bunch of other things that come along with living on a homestead or living on a farm. I know a guy that does chicken processing twice a year. People pay to come down when you're going to kill chickens and learn how to do it. Um, So there's like a lot of little things that we could offer where we would, you know, accept money from the public at large and that money would go to further what we do. And of course, accept donations. Increasing the amount of healthy food available would be a huge net good these days. Yeah, that's kind of the thought. It kind of started because we have some customers uh, that we deliver eggs to on Sunday mornings that are not super well off. And we also have customers that are like elderly in town that can't necessarily get out of town to get something like fresh eggs. So we offer the service of delivering it to their house. It seems like society, especially our society, years ago, you really respected your elders and took care of them. Our society has taken this turn where you hit like a certain age and they just stick you in a home and you drink and sure and eat pureed carrots for the rest of your life until you finally kick the bucket. You know, there's all these avenues of all these people that should have access to good food uh, and just don't. So if we could figure out a way to fill that void and give these people a chance to eat better nutrition, why not? We were afforded an opportunity we thought we would never have to have a farm. And we feel like the right thing to do is to turn around and figure out a way to give that back. Well, that's cool. You'll have to keep us posted on this. I'll try. Hopefully it materializes. I think this is the part where we introduce a new segment called Plebs from the Underground. And that's where we talk about comments and or donations to the pod. Do you have anything for us this week? Let me check the fountain booths for this week. Thank God for editing. Well, I'm not editing this. (laughs) Uh, We got Barn Miner. Shout out to Barn Miner. Barn Miner. Dropped us a nice little uh, 4,700 sats. Damn. Didn't leave a comment, just left a nice little boost for us on the last episode, so that's what's up. Missing um, out on a common opportunity there, Barn Miner. We have John from Bit by Bit, who dropped us almost 20,000 sats. Thank you, John. said, let's fucking go! So, shout out to John. I enjoyed their recent science podcast episode. Science. Actually, I'm, I'm going to talk about it a little bit in our next segment. All right, all right, all right. Absurd Observations, I believe, is her Twitter handle. Uh, dropped us 9,500 sats and said, getting into a good flow, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate you it. she? I believe. What? I believe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Listen, man. what are you going to do? This one is from the episode before, but it's from Bubba. 9,500 sats. He says, hey, I identify as a pink, batshit crazy, insane, fat-ass old fuck. Look at how many groups I fit in. I'm special, damn it. Good show, boys. Cool Beans Ranch is not 
I fuck. <laughs> Shout out to Bubba. I fucking love you. Thanks, Bubba. Yeah, that's what we got. So uh, if you guys want to drop a comment and get your comment read on the podcast, hit us up with a boost on Fountain and uh, we'll read whatever you write. I know that's probably a double-edged sword saying that. I'm not going to say anything that's going to get me fired. That's like my line. Well, that's why I'm reading. All right. <laughs> as long as you don't fire me, we're good. I can't fire you. It's your podcast. Our podcast. You're wearing this together. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your comments and Satoshi's everybody. In our last episode, we were talking about whether or not a crisis was something that was easy to dispute. And I've been thinking about it. I think it really is hard to dispute when people say there's going to be a crisis or there is a crisis. Um, a crisis represents an assumption that something's going to happen bad in the future. And since nobody can really tell the future, nobody can absolutely argue against a crisis. So it's a terrific political angle. And in the fiat world, nobody holds the scientists and media politicians accountable. So there's really no mechanism to stop people from mislabeling things a crisis. And the people who are wrong about a crisis, they're not willing to admit defeat. They just double down on it later. Yeah, or they say, listen, things were said on both sides. Right. That's the great line. Things were said on both sides. <laughs> Factually correct. Can't argue against it. Right, right. You know what it is? It's the classic uh, abusive spouse line. After a terrible fight when they said some absolutely horrible shit to you, you'll never forget. Like, listen, things were said on both sides, all right? We both said things we regret. In fact somebody on a side might cling to something silly that their side did and say, well, that's why it didn't turn to a crisis. We did the silly thing. You should be thanking us. Oh yeah. All the time. All the time. It's kind of like, I've, I've the... actually pivoted to a new book. Okay. You like to I read finished the book. I was reading for like a month. I've pivoted to a new book, which is CS Lewis. So I'm pretty excited for that. So that's something to do with crises. Uh, it has to do with the natural law and how people are supposed to act versus how people act knowing that there is a natural law in the way they are supposed to act. Well, if the rules don't hold people accountable, there's really no natural law. Yeah, but natural law doesn't refer to rules. Natural law refers to the fact that instinctively somehow you know that it's wrong to steal from your fellow man instinctively you know that it's wrong to do certain things and yet people do them anyway right yep. but there's this thing in everybody where regardless of what you're taught you know that certain things are right and wrong instinctively we're not supposed to be rent-seeking middlemen but the system incentivizes us to do those things so we do them exactly but this book was written in the 60s hmm so prior to what we see, which is the realization of all of the terrible decisions made in the past 50 years, right? This was like the hypothesis going into the beginning of all these terrible decisions that were starting to be made. It's yeah. interesting to read things like that, right? Sovereign Individual is another example of that, where it was written a while ago and you read it and it draws a lot of parallels with today. 1984 is another example. It's a good thing you Great read all those world. books. They're going to be outlawed pretty soon. Yeah, I'm buying them in hardcover and uh, adding them to my library as we go so they don't, you know, I can get them before they fall victim to uh, the propaganda machine. You keep talking about how this overly politicized child leader told us the world was going to end by now, and it, and it didn't. Right. But instead of saying, oh, well, that crisis 
wasn't real. People doubled down and no, she went back and deleted covered. the tweet. But nobody really cares. It's like that Jurassic Park scene where the guy says, see, nobody cares. Yeah, exactly. It's you know, exactly like that. We didn't freeze to death or burn to death. And most of us, not all of us, didn't die of a respiratory infection. It's exactly like that, along with some gaslighting that they never really meant it like that. Actually, they keep talking about this turning point where once we hit that, the environment can't come back. Yeah, that was supposed to be sometime this year. Right. And on that bit by bit episode, they said something really interesting. He had a scientist on. I don't know who it was. He was English. And he said that at one time, the Earth's atmosphere is like 100% carbon dioxide. And now it's like 0.1% carbon dioxide. And we've hit this turning point. And we're acting as if the Earth's biological ecosystems don't turn these things around slowly. Right. I could be wrong. It could be 50%, but there's still, it's still like a 500 time magnitude difference. Yeah. I mean, you see all these examples. We talk about how we don't grow enough food and there's not enough food for everybody. And, you know, plants need carbon dioxide to survive. Right. And that's just like the myth that a lot of people don't believe and they're not going to believe it when they hear this. But if you go out and research it yourself, you'll find it to be true. Oil replenishes itself in the ground faster than we can pull it out of the ground. Well, in any case, we wouldn't want more carbon dioxide because it would make more plants. And then how would we get greener? (laughs) Yes. But they goofed up when they put a date on it because that's something that's provably false at that date. I mean, yeah, but they've done it again and again in history. They do it with every climate thing. They put a date on it. And it's always 10 years into the future. This is what's going to happen. And by the time the date comes, everybody has the memory of a gerbil. So they've forgotten that that person said that. And we just move on to the next thing. Usually the narrative has already changed to the next thing. John McAfee did the same mistake. He said it was going to be a million dollars by this date. And then he had to he had to kill himself to restore his honor, I think. Listen, sometimes the road's rough, you know what I mean? But you got to be a soldier. But it helps when your politicians are super old. They don't really need to stick around too long to see whether or not, well, for <laughs> you to see whether or not it was right or wrong. Yeah, they're usually out of elected office by the time you realize they were lying about everything. <laughs> but people who were wrong about crises in the past, they're dumb if they continue to accept these claims of crisis at face value. And they're especially dumb if they continue to cite the science as the reason why they accept it. Well, I mean, the worst example of this is the idea that the world is going to be overpopulated and we're not going to be able to feed everybody. That's been going on since the 60s. They've been talking about that depopulation because we're not going to be able to sustain a population that is such and such a size. And this year, actually... We are bigger than we've ever been population-wise, and global hunger is lower than it's ever been. We've talked about this before, though, too. That all that shit about, like, people, oh, there's not enough food is just bullshit. There's not enough food for a population of 7 billion people that are lazy and want to go to Walmart to get their food. Absolutely. Thankfully, a good portion of the planet still produces their own food. Well, when we run out of food, I'm going to trade you cigars for food. That's my plan. (laughs) When we run out of food, you can just come to the homestead. You'll be fine. I appreciate that. We're actually looking at, we're looking at more property up in uh, 
Vermont. Additional property or t- just to move? Not to move. Probably an eventual retirement place. I love this town, but I hate being here in the summer because it's a summer destination for people. So ideally, I'd like to go up there for the summer and then come back down here for the winter because it's quiet in town in the winter. So um, other people want to be there in the summer, but you do not because correct. they want to be there. Correct. So we were looking at 200 plus acre stretches up in northern Vermont. You're the only person I know that wants to get away from where other people want to be. Yeah, fuck that. Like if you told me right now, move to Orlando, it's like the most cliche place on earth. I'd be like, cool, that's a cool summer destination. No, no, God, no. God, no. Every place I'm looking at, I check the town to see what the population is. Anything over a thousand is too many people. I've actually talked to two other Bitcoiners that I'm friends with, and we might split like 270 acres three ways. A lot of acres. Are the taxes very low on that? Yeah. It's all undeveloped land. There's nothing there. Hmm. That's also why you look at a town that is tiny. Because the smaller the town, the lower your taxes. The place we have in Maine is in a town of like 60 people. We have a public school, but there's no town hall, none of that shit. So the taxes up there are like next to nothing. I think I pay like $127 a year in taxes. Well, keep us posted on that project as well. I wanted to mention, I really liked the framing you had the last episode. We talked about the two-party system being the people who believe everything they hear and the people that question everything they hear. I think that makes a lot of sense. Really? As opposed to like a left versus right thing. A lot of my friends on the right believe like 80% of what they hear. And they think they're being contrarian because they don't believe 20% of it. But a lot of people on the right aren't on the right. They're just less left. Correct. I don't really think it's left and right though. I don't think it's linear. I don't think left and right exists in this country anymore. I think there's left and further left. There's left, further left, and far left, is what you have. This is a new segment called Things That Frito Bitches About. You know what really grinds my gears? Things That Grind Frito's Gears. So, <laughs> so, so here's one. I think it's an important safety observation. It's important for our male listeners specifically. So I was driving home yesterday from a lacrosse tournament. It was a pretty long drive. It was my kids, not mine, but... I slept pretty well, and on the way home, I was getting all drowsy, and I was I was having a hard time just staying awake driving, and I couldn't figure out why. And then this morning, I get in my car, and I look over, and on my wife's side, she's got the temperature set at 80, because she was cold, right? So <laughs> I'm driving home this fucking sauna. So my safety tip is if you're driving, and you're getting tired, and you don't know why, make sure you check the temperature, because maybe your wife fucked it all up. Windows down, people. Windows down. It's like when you're hammered and driving home, not that you should get hammered and drive home, but uh, always windows down, especially if it's cold out, windows down. Normally, I'm totally fine, but just you can't smoke me out like that and expect me to stay awake. Yeah, no, no. So we've got a recurring segment where we talk about self-defense and and we're going to call it wrench defense. Wrench defense. Yeah, wrench defense. (laughs) For our weapons take today, I want to talk about everyday carry knives. I think that's often neglected. 
and why my recommendation for an EDC knife is the Rike R-I-K-E 1507 folding knife. Rike's a Chinese company. They make machine-made knives. And as far as Chinese companies go, they make a really good product, as long as you stay away from some of the early prototypes. Do you have a favorite EDC knife, Elsie? I do. You're going to have to edit out this pause because I got to look it up. You got to what? I got to look it up. Oh, didn't I tell you we were going to do this? Yeah, but do I ever do I ever prepare? You couldn't look up the name of the knife. I couldn't remember, man. We're going to play this like one of your old shows. Just just raw. Yeah. Actually, your so... old show would be like. Oh, the internet cut out. Hello, Elsie? Hello? Hello? Hello, Elsie? Are you there? Hello? I think I lost them. (laughs) So my everyday carry is a Cobra Tech CTK-1. I highly recommend that knife as not only a daily carry, but an excellent wrench defense knife. It is an automatic knife. So it has this nifty little switch on the side of it. Are we allowed to say that on this podcast, Elsie? Oh, let me ter- turn my brightness down so you can see it. I don't think we're allowed to promote automatic knives on this podcast, Elsie. That's a knife you would use if it were legal. I bought it at the gun store, so it's legal. Okay. Has a nice little switch at the top, pushing up. Extends the blade, pulling back, sucks the blade back in. Uh, it also has a window break on the bottom of it, so uh-huh. it serves more than one purpose. Definitely the knife you want to be reaching for in your pocket if you're in a situation where you feel like you're going to need to defend yourself. Uh, You don't want to have to fumble around with flipping open a folding knife. It's an easy switch. Bang, knife's out. Bang, knife's closed. And it also has a safety feature in it that if there's resistance against it, when you hit the handle, the spring automatically lets go and the knife goes limp before it comes out to lock in. So it's got a spring in it. You've got a spring knife in your pocket. Spring-loaded, yeah. Uh-huh. And the defense is if there's pressure against it, it won't go open. When I first got it, I tested it against a piece of cardboard uh-huh. to see if I flipped the switch, if it would go through the cardboard. Because my yeah. worry was carrying it in my pocket. I work on the farm. I do you know physical labor for work. I was worried if something caught it and flipped the switch by some off chance. I don't uh-huh. want to stab myself in the leg, obviously. So what's harder, a piece of cardboard or your ball sack? <laughs> Asking the tough questions. I mean, that, that's that's your scientific experiment here to make sure it's safe <laughs> in your pocket. Well, I didn't have any ballistic gelatin uh, handy. Uh-huh. But definitely <laughs> my recommendation for an everyday carry for a knife. They are a little pricey. Um, on their website, the knife that I carry. They've got more expensive. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, right? That's not like news, I guess. Right. They're a little pricey. The knife that I carry every day on their website's like roughly 125 bucks. I bought mine on clearance because it's Tiffany blue. So it is really gay. Uh, but it was on sale because it was Tiffany blue and nobody was buying it. I'll buy a cheaper knife if, if it's a different color. Like, I don't care. Yeah, I'm the same way. I've been going into the gun shop. They have like a specific jewelry stand, all glass, right? That you can walk around that has knives in it. And they have like three tiers that are dedicated to Cobra Tech knives. So I've been looking at them and looking at them, but I couldn't justify spending $100 on a knife. It went on sale for like 75 bucks or something because nobody was buying that color. So I grabbed it. Actually, my wife bought it for me for Father's Day. We're that couple that does like, oh, I really want that. That'd be great for Father's Day. She's like, if you want to just buy it, that's your Father's Day present. Okay. (laughs) 
So your wife was like, here's a spring-loaded knife you can keep in your pocket. Happy Father's Day. Correct. My neighbors it, are shooting off fireworks right now. I can't hear them. Good. But if you're talking about a knife for the purpose of self-defense, there's a lot of cool knives out there that I like to carry. When I'm, you know, when I'm working on the farm, I carry some other stuff. Most of the time, I carry just like a folding utility knife that I can replace the blade on because... If you have a nice knife that you spent $100 on, you don't want to be cutting shit you think is going to fuck the blade up. Right. You don't want to so, use your blade for, like, everyday things or, like, removing caulk at your house. It's, that's kind of dumb. Right. I say that because I want to draw that distinction between the knife that I would carry with the thought that I may enter a situation where I need to defend myself and a knife that I carry for actual utility to use in everyday life, on the farm, at work. Stuff okay. like that is always, I bought, I have a cheap little mossy oak folding utility knife that I carry for everyday use. And I beat the shit out of it and I just throw the blade away and put a new one in it. But if I'm carrying it for the purposes of defending against a wrench attack, we're definitely looking at something like a Cobra Tech knife. There is uh, another company out there that has some kind of a ripoff name, Snake Tech or something like that, uh, that makes a cheaper version of the Cobra Tech, but I can't vouch for the quality of that product i know that the cobra tech that i have is good quality there are two guys that i know that are home miners that carry the cheaper version of it and they both love them but if you're talking about defending yourself in a situation where somebody's trying to take something that's yours and you need a weapon and for some reason concealed carry isn't uh doable for you i would highly suggest carrying a good fighting style knife and preferably something that is designed to be quick open if you're in a state that has laws against uh, spring-loaded knives or a spring-loaded knife if it's available to you. Okay. LC's not going to put his good name behind Snake Tech because we don't know Snake Tech well. I've never tested him. I can't tell you. You might go to pull it out and use it and it doesn't come out or... I don't want to tell somebody that. And then they tag me on Twitter like, hey, motherfucker, you told me to buy this knife and I got robbed and it didn't work. So right. just spend the extra coin and buy a Cobra Tech. So if you'll indulge me, I want to go through my thought process picking a knife. Oh, I know there's a thought process. There's nothing you don't come fully prepared on. So hit me. Well, the first distinction is, do you want to get like a fancy handmade custom knife or a machine made knife? And I would opt for a machine made knife because I don't want to spend five times as much. And I think that machine-made knives are going to be more precisely made than a handmade knife these days. It's kind of like automatic versus manual transmission these days. And I don't want to purchase a... Did you just comment against a manual transmission? Yeah, I mean, it's... This it's, will be uh, Frito's manual... last episode of the podcast. Uh, not only has he joined the meme factory, but he is also shitting on a fucking standard. So, uh... We're just not as good anymore. I mean, it's, it's more manly. I'll give you that. But it's, it's not as efficient in shifting. Continue with your thought. All right. So I don't want to get this collectible that I'm afraid to scratch. I want something I want to, I'm going to be able to use, right? And I want a flip knife because flip knives, you can see here, it's not slow to do that, right? No, but it takes coordination. It's not that bad. In, a, in an anxiety-ridden situations such as you fear for your life uh -huh. will you be able to pull it out and make such movements or is it easier to pull it out and go 
Your blade didn't come out right there. That's my lighter, but still, you get the point. Oh, that's not your knife. That's your lighter. You're just doing it for Same effect. Switch. I got you. I can go get the knife. If no, you it's want. okay. I believe you. I believe you. I, I feel like I'm capable of doing this. Like I do it every day, many times. But the Reich 1502 is is a thumb operated knife. I don't trust that coordination. I think the flip is more desirable. And even though I'm not a a ninja, despite my Asianism, and I'm not a Navy SEAL. I do care about the materials that go into it. So I'm looking for a titanium alloy handle because light and durable and high grade stainless steel for the blade. I want something that's corrosion resistant and and I want a blade that's going to hold well. So I'm looking for S35VN or M390 steel alloy blades. And I want the knife to be a decent length. If I'm going to stab something, I want to be able to stab something. So I think this knife in total length is like eight and three quarters inches. Not that inches are everything. And the blade shape matters too. I, I like drop points. I think it's got better penetration than say like a Tonto blade. Even just cutting boxes, like the shape of the 1507 is more effective than any other knife I've used. Um, it's got a nice thin blade. And the handle's got to be kind of angular so you can get a grip on it and, and get some leverage behind it. I don't want something that's just a straight line. The 1507, you see how skinny that is, but it has surprising grip for how skinny it is. It's helpful if the handle is skeletonized. It lightens it up a bit. And where this knife really shines, it has a deep pocket carry clip here. So when you put it in your pocket, you really can't see the knife at all. It almost looks like a pen sticking out of your pocket. So I think that being skinnier, it's actually more useful for penetration, but it also looks less obvious when it's in your pocket. You used to be able to pick up one of these for 150 bucks on eBay. Right now, the cheapest I can find, there's some guy that's willing to sell one for 220 if you make an offer. But there just aren't many of these left because they're discontinued. So I agree with you on a couple of points. I agree with you on machine-made. I own a few custom knives that are handmade. I agree with you on quality of material. My everyday carry is a high-grade aluminum alloy chassis and a D2 steel blade. Also, the style blade that I recommend is I run a dagger blade. So it's double-edged, and up the middle is a spine with vent holes in it. Theoretically, that is supposed to stop it from getting stuck in something, being meat. Yeah, and it has kind of some ergonomic cuts on the handle where your fingers fit underneath where the button is on the back. It definitely is more friendly handle-wise. I also have an Italian stiletto that I got as like a conversation piece years and years ago at a gun show. I think I paid like 90 bucks for it. It has pearl handles. I thought that was a lot of money at the time. I was like 14. The whole having to hold the knife with the side where the blade folds out uh -huh. off of your palm for my stiletto in order to push the button and have the blade come out was always like a situational issue for me. Like I said, in a high anxiety situation to pull it out and make sure your hand's in the right positioning. Unless, like you said, you know, you fidget with yours like a fidget spinner all day long, right? It's almost second nature to you to pull it out and just do that action with it. As far as an out-of-the-box solution, not having to practice with it, I definitely the slide button as opposed to the push button on the stiletto for me. Whatever you're doing, you just want to sit around and practice with it like constantly too just so you get used to it. Yeah, I agree. A lot of people don't, though. So I'm going for convenience over uh, the idea that somebody will train with said weapon. When you get 
into the habit of carrying one with you, you really need to be mindful of what you're doing that day. Like you can't go to the ballpark or the concert with one. One time my family went to Washington, D.C., and I stupidly forgot I had mine in my pocket. And I had to figure out what to do with it because I couldn't go anywhere because all the museums have metal detectors. Did you put it in your jail purse to get on the plane? For a brief second, I thought, well, I could hide it under a garbage can and come back and get it. And that's really dangerous. So you can't do that. And I ended up getting like a very expensive Uber ride back to the hotel and back, which cost almost as much as my knife. <laughs> but to make it better, my dad actually forgot his knife in his pocket, too. So I had the excuse that I had to save two knives, not just one knife. <laughs> But uh, my I'm wife, sure your wife was thrilled. Off. She was really pissed off like all day long after that. I would assume. Yes. But I thought Carrie Nice was a good topic. Anything else to add on that? It is. I mean, I've lost a handful of knives to TSA. So. You get That's to the, part of the being mindful part. <laughs> yeah. You get to the airport and you're standing in line like next one to go through the body scanner and you're like, fuck. All right. Guess I'm donating that. But yeah, I agree. I think it's an under-discussed topic. A lot of people talk about guns and uh, getting your concealed carry. And, you know, I'm all for that. I'm very pro uh, gun ownership. But there are definitely situations that arise where people either because of draconian laws in our country can't own guns or have situations where you can't carry a gun. Right. So um, I think a knife is a good alternative. And I think a knife is a safer alternative if you don't know what the fuck you're doing with a gun. And you're much less likely to kill an innocent bystander with a pocket knife than you are with a gun that you haven't trained with. I think that uh, stun guns could be a good alternative too, although in New York they're illegal. Yeah, I don't know. I've known some people and I've seen plenty of videos of every once in a while you catch that person that's either rocked out on PCP or they're just naturally, you know, monkey strength and you hit him with the taser and it doesn't phase him. <laughs> so I wouldn't want that to be my line of defense, no matter how big and bad you are. If you stop poking holes in somebody, it usually gets a reaction. Yeah. Knives can be like guns where you can buy a lot of them too. And if I'm buying like high grade knives, I'm probably just buying some of the one that I really like rather than a whole bunch of different ones. Although I have to admit, I think your point about guns became more correct over mine. Just in the past week, I saw they were trying to pass legislation to limit the amount of guns people could buy. So that was an argument for just get it while you can. So I, I saw that. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. As far as the knife thing, I agree with you on machine-made knives. I think you find one company who makes a good quality machine-made knife and you buy maybe maximum two or three of them. So you have redundant backups. But when you start leaning into the custom knife world, that becomes more of a collectible and a conversation piece. And, you know, I have dress knives that I'll wear when it's appropriate that are custom made Damascus steel handmade knives that are beautiful. When would one wear a dress knife? Uh, anytime I'm wearing fancy clothes, I wear a dress knife. Like I carry a dress knife to church. It's in your pocket, though. It's not on display. I mean, a lot of the collectible stuff that I have is fixed blades, so it's on display. Oh. You we run wear... in different circles, Frito. When you're, just... a, when you're a lowly, poor, blue-collar guy, there's plenty of opportunities for dress knives. <laughs> <laughs> it 
goes well with the Damascus hatchet. Yeah, yeah. If you're going down to the honky tonk, you know, you strap on the bone handle you had custom made and head down. Drives the ladies crazy. So nothing gets nothing gets the girls swarming around you like a lifted truck with 35s on it and a custom made bone knife. Yeah, so I. That's how you find wife material. <laughs> <laughs> she only wants me for my bone knife. <laughs> There was a plane incident we should talk about, and I, I, I'm kind of unprepared for this because I have no idea what to think about it, but we saw the video of the TikTok lady. It's actually going to be in our intro a little bit today, even though I changed her voice to a guy's voice, which I thought was kind of cool. But, <laughs> but she got up and she's like, you can believe me or don't believe me, but that guy back there is not real. And it, like rumor has it, she thought somebody on the airplane was like a, a reptile and I'm trying to rationalize like that wasn't the only one this week. There was like multiple episodes this week where people are on planes just thinking that other people on plane weren't real and they were freaking out. Like, where do you think that's coming from? Um, What's going on? Well, the thing with the, the situation with her was unclear, still is unclear as to what actually happened. Cause there was the guy that came out and put out a video that said he was the one that was sitting next to her. I didn't see that. He was a Freemason. He had a bunch of like occult symbolism tattooed on him. He had his whole face tattooed. And she was like kind of grilling him about his like occult symbolism on himself. He told her that he was a Freemason and she said Freemasons are Satanists. And he looked at her and said, I am Lucifer. And then she got up and went fucking ballistic. So if that story's true, then it makes her reaction make a lot more sense. Oh, was he just trolling her? Did he think he was yeah. into her? Yeah, supposedly he was trolling her. There's another interesting conspiracy theory. Uh-huh. That I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Lucifer. Yeah. Not the whole thing, but a lot of it, yeah. When he shows people his eyes, they yeah. freak out in the show. Right. So there's like this running conspiracy theory that if it's a demon or demons, if they are showing these people who they truly are, then you have people freaking out. Okay. <laughs> Again, probably going to go right over the people who think that we live in a strictly physical world and don't think that the metaphysical exists. You know, if that's your lot in life, I'm, I'm sorry. But, but this uh, is happening a lot now for some reason. Yeah. You have a lot of fucked up shit that's happened in the last five years. You know, if you want to go for the strictly physical explanation of it, people are more mentally distressed than they've ever been. I wonder if there's like some copycat stuff going on. There's actually a mental disorder that happened in New York. There's a famous case of a bunch of teenage girls that all had like the same physical ailments and none of the doctors could tell what it was. And the conclusion was they saw each other having these symptoms so they all developed these symptoms and believed that they were having these symptoms so it was like a shared delusion yeah what do they call that i don't know uh social contagion isn't it maybe but Where people just I mean, start talking about like symptoms and then all of a sudden all these people decide they have it and if they it goes back to like that mystery they have in a lot of like famous medical cases where they won't be able to find something actually wrong via tests with somebody, but 
for some reason they're showing all of these physical traits and there's this belief that if you actually truly believe that something is wrong with you, that you can actually make yourself sick through believing that. Yeah. Psychosomatic is the term for that. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So either he was a demon or maybe there's some kind of shared delusion going on. Well, if she, if she believed that demons were real and he has the outward appearance to make himself look as occult as possible. Right. Uh, right. That shit drives me nuts, right? You have these people who go out and do stupid shit, like get a giant tattoo on their face, like a slow motion car crash. You can't help but look at it. And then when they catch you looking at it, they say, what the fuck are you looking at? Uh, that fucking thing you put on your face to make me look at you. That's what I'm looking at. Right. So you have this guy that has all these tattoos all over his face and then occult symbols tattooed all up and down his arms that she can see. And then on top of that, her belief system tells her that these things exist. And then he turns around jokingly and says, I am this thing that you think exists. When you look at it through that lens, her reaction is appropriate. I do want to say that I think it's absolutely fucking hilarious. The reaction, the overall reaction to the video. If this was you or me in that video that was freaking out, Everybody would be like, oh, fuck that guy. Look at him. What a fucking loser. Fuck that. Get him the fuck off the plane. But you have this girl who some people seem to find moderately attractive. And basically the reaction to the video has become, I can fix her. I can fix her. She's kind of like a lot of Bitcoin women on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) She seems very believable to me. Yeah, right. Exactly. Frito, who wants to follow him? He's an idiot. (laughs) Well, I won't only been here for 10 years, but there's this new chick that seems to know everything. (laughs) She has a crypto show, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? She could probably start a crypto show right now and make her own coin up and be very wealthy just doing that. Yeah. Just as an aside, there's opting out by buying Bitcoin and there's opting out by fucking up your face. And one of those is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not the kind of person that is uh, staunchly against tattoos. Me neither, um, but you're you're asking to be excluded. Like we're in a society that says, "Oh, you need to include everybody." But dude, if you put tattoos all over your face, like you kind of deserve that. Yeah, my thing is the way I was brought up. Right? Was it's okay to have tattoos, but if you're gonna get tattoos, get them somewhere where if you got dressed to go to a job interview, they're not visible. Right? Like I probably have. 25 hours of tattoo work. I wouldn't get too specific about your tattoos here. Right. So I, I if probably you want have... to show me the one on your penis. I won't tell anybody. You, you already have it. Stop playing. But yeah, that's so that's kind of the approach that I've always taken to it. Right. Like I have a bunch of tattoos, but all my tattoos, if I wear a short sleeve button up shirt and a pair of pants, I don't have any tattoos. Well, that's how you're doing tattoos correctly. I think. That's what I believe. I believe you should be able to still look presentable in a professional capacity um, and get tattoos if you want them. I don't know. I've always wanted like a big throat tattoo or a neck tattoo, but it goes against what I believe. Maybe one day when I'm like 50 or 60, I'm going to go lay down in the tattoo parlor and just let them tattoo fuck you across my throat because I'll get to that point. But don't right now, like, it's just not conducive to, like, ever wanting to have any kind of a professional life. Speaking of that, not that anybody would ever look at my Twitter profile, but if you look at my background, 
the girl that you have as the symbol of your show has tattoos all over. And I'd encourage people to go check out those tattoos. On my, <laughs> my profile. Yeah. I'm not staunchly against tattoos. I know a lot of people are, it's very popular to be all against tattoos. I do believe that it's more nuanced than that. I think there are classy ways to do tattoos and there are not classy ways to do tattoos. Tattoos uh, are what got Hadlanat in trouble. Really? Yeah. He posted a picture of his tattoos, and that's how uh, CSW tracked him down and started the whole legal thing. No shit. It was a bounty on that tattoo. Interesting. You learn something every day. So in this case, either that guy was a demon, or she was just really stressed out because Fiat World, or maybe she was thirsty for attention. Yeah, her SSRIs ran out. There's a lot of fucking reasons why it could have yeah. happened. There's been a push about aliens in the media. I wonder if this has anything to do with that. It very well could be. There was the guy that freaked out a couple of days after her and tried to open up the exit hatch to let himself out mid-flight. Right. But as you stated, that's totally fine. Yeah, he can jump. Everybody else will be fine. I was too lazy to do a search and find people who got stuck out of airplanes. I wanted to, but I was too lazy to do it. You're too lazy to do it mostly because it's not real. It's real. Um, It's not. I saw it on TikTok. Okay. If it was real, though, explain something to me. If people getting sucked out of a plane was real, uh-huh. how would cargo planes work that open the back hatch and let jumpers jump out? How would skydiving work? How would, uh, when they push a tank out with a parachute on the top of it, how would that work? Fuck. They open that big cargo bay door in the back and somehow, magically, the 40 guys inside the plane don't get sucked out of the back of the plane. And yet in every movie you see, they open this door that is a tenth of the size and it just starts sucking people out the side of the plane. Doesn't it have something to do with pressurizing the cabin, though? Like, the cabin is all pressurized up there. It's different than planning on opening up your cargo door. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to find videos, though. I'm going to find videos. See, uh-huh. See, somebody got sucked out. Thank God for TikTok. Yeah, you wait. I wonder what crazy things we're going to see this week related to that. Did I lose you? No. So there was a Bitcoin-related story this week. This is a Bitcoin show. Did you see that bricks thing? Apparently people have been sucked out of windows, but nobody's been sucked out of a door. That makes no fucking sense. I'll have to send you the video of the guy that opened up the two in the last like month or so that opened up the emergency exit. Okay. But windows. Apparently uh, on a couple of Air India flights, the window has been broken mid-flight and somebody got half sucked out of it. If you can get sucked out of a window, you can get sucked out of a door. You would think. Anyway, what were you saying about Rick? You can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. (laughs) No, the bricks. Russell. Russell. Brazil, Russia, India, China are making their own digital currency backed by gold. Did you see that? It's not happening. They're talking about plans that it may one day happen. The only thing those countries have in common is they don't like the U.S. Yo, that's not an exclusive club. Brazil fucking loves us, by the way. They can posture all they like as far as, like, I want to stay good with China and Russia and all that shit, but we buy more soy from Brazil than anybody else. So they're quite fond of our business. 
I was having trouble figuring out how the other superpowers accepted them other than respecting their bikini waxing. Maybe their jujitsu. They're one of the biggest agricultural countries in the world. But they just have this common interest of not wanting to be subservient to the petrodollar. Correct. But there's a lot of problems with launching a new currency backed by gold. And I think a lot of normies just say, oh, that sounds interesting. We're going to back it with gold. There's not a Bitcoiner that doesn't listen to this podcast that doesn't already know the problems that exist with a currency that's backed by gold and the fallacies that come along with something that is pegged to gold, right? Verifying a supply of gold, paper gold, things like that. There's all kinds of issues you run into with shit like that. Any country that fucked up their fiat currency system and wants to reboot it with another fiat currency needs to be suspect because they already messed up their money. I think in the the case of a place like Brazil, they don't want to be subject to the US dollar at this time in history because they look around themselves in South America and see what's happened to other countries around them with hyperinflation. And they see the same kind of trend happening with the United States dollar and they want to get the fuck out before it happens, especially South America. It's hard to ignore when a half dozen countries around you hit hyperinflation over the course of 30 years. Well, when a country backs its money with gold now, which has already failed in the past, it's not going to be easy to verify the supply of gold. I doubt that the system is going to let the public audit the gold supply. And we know gold's expensive to produce and secure and it's bad for the environment if we still care about that a big problem is that to keep the fiat printing going if you truly back it by gold they're not gonna be able to expand the money supply enough to keep their current systems going no of course not so there's going to have to be hijinks because they just can't do it in a legit way Of course, but they're just trying to make it look more legit because they're realizing that you don't trust the currency they have. And the only way that they think they can appeal to the largest amount of people with a currency that, you know, that they're going to put out again and put their name on is to back it with something that people think is the best possible thing to back it with, right? The safe haven asset, which has always been, historically has always been gold. We keep talking about how they manufacture crises. So when there's a crisis, are they going to close the gold redemption window again? So you can't trade your fiat currency for gold again because they they need to expand the money supply beyond that to deal with the crisis? Of course, it's going to be illegal to possess it. The thing a lot of people don't realize is historically, when you have a fiat currency that's backed by gold, it's inevitable that government that issues that currency makes it the personal possession of gold itself illegal Mm -hmm. when you reach that tipping point when they can no longer print any more money because they don't have the gold to back it self-custody of gold becomes illegal so it's a band-aid on a gunshot wound when it comes to fiat currency and we're kind of used to countries just misplacing funds like what happens when a portion of the gold supply goes missing do they have to recall some of their issued currency no it just becomes worth less that's where you see inflation right what was once a dollar before uh, some of that gold goes missing is now a dollar fifty because if you have a, a note that represents an ounce of gold now represents seven eighths of an ounce of gold. Any currency that's backed by anything needs to have some kind of ability to publicly audit the supply. It doesn't need to, but it should. It never has in the history of the world. Right. But Bitcoin changes that. Bitcoin's Bitcoin the only thing that you can that. verify. 
Right. The only thing you can verify the supply of. The circulating supply, anyway. But back in... There was a hot topic about that this past week. I don't know if you saw that. No, what was that? I think it was an ETH maxi that made the point that you can't verify the max supply of Bitcoin. Which, if you want to get technical over the use of words, he's not wrong. Right? The only thing you can necessarily verify right now is the circulating supply. How can you not verify the max supply? I mean, it can't you, never hit 21 million, but you know it's not going over that. But you can't verify that it will always be that way, I guess was his point. Because... Whereas you can verify the circulating amount. Are they saying that because they're saying that the rule set might change? There, I think their argument is the rule set inevitably has to change because they believe that transaction fees won't be enough to subsidize mining when the block reward drops off a cliff. I know it's a stupid argument, so you don't have to think about a rebuttal for it. We all know that it's an absolutely retarded argument, but that is the basis they stand on. Let's get back to what we were originally talking about, right? We are originally talking about you would need to be able to verify what you have to back a currency versus how much of that currency is in circulating supply. Yeah. I mean, in Bitcoin, that's just the rule set is what backs it. Yeah. But you also know that your 500 Satoshis are worth whatever they're worth because you can verify the circulating supply of Bitcoin. Okay. I just think that people who accept the current fiat system is broken, so we should make a new one, are kind of nuts. Well, yeah, but they don't know another way out. They think the only way out is either another fiat currency that's backed by gold or go back to seashells. Some retards think we're going to end up in a gold standard where, like, it's not a fiat currency and you actually transact in gold, but that's never going to fucking happen. The stupid little life cards and shit that people walk around with where you can like break a little piece off of it and it's a little tiny piece of gold. You mentioned that before. That sounds just dumb. It's never going to happen. Nobody's going to walk around with, you know, you're going to go on vacation to Disney World, right? Disney World is 10 G's for a week. You're not walking around with 10 grand and fucking untraceable gold in your pocket. Let's be sounds, real. Like, sounds like we're just trading beads again. You, yeah, you're trading shiny rocks instead of shells. For the word of the day, I wanted to talk about loyalty. How would you define loyalty? I don't know, Frito. How does Webster define loyalty? Because I know you have it on the screen you're sitting in front of. Actually, I didn't look this one up. <laughs> really? Yeah. I thought about it. I think that it's placing so much value in somebody that you can accept the short side of a trade with that person. That's interesting. So I think in most trades, fair value is much more important than loyalty. I think we rely on loyalty too much. The U.S. dollar might be an example, but like your employer-employee relationship is another example. In an economy, just this concept of loyalty and relying on that is kind of bullshit. You were saying that you didn't think that you could be friends with somebody unless you receive some value in the in the friendship. And I, I respect and agree with that. But I think that when you've received enough value, you've banked that value, then you can start to accept the short side of trades with that person. 
Like that's... loyalty doesn't have anything to do with value, though. With what? With value. I think it does. That's the argument I'm making. My argument for loyalty is I see a show of loyalty as somebody else putting themselves out there to benefit you or to help you, which I guess would be benefiting you. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like when you become loyal to friends, that friend has banked enough value with you that now you're willing to go above and beyond the value of the trade because they've banked that value. Okay. But I think that real loyalty should be reserved for like friends and family only. So when people cite loyalty to country or political ideology or race or. Well, loyalty and respect fall in the same category, right? For me, loyalty and respect fall in the same category in the aspect of they're earned. They're not given. Depends on how you define respect. Like I can respect somebody, but that doesn't mean I'm willing to take a short side of a trade with them. Right. But what I mean is I'm not going to talk basically the the easiest way I can break it down. Right. I'm not going to talk to you with respect if you're going to disrespect me every time you talk to me. That kind of respect is earned. Your actions and the way you carry yourself and the way you interact with me are my response to you and the way I treat you is a direct reflection of that. So that. I don't want to say that setup, but that order of operations and reactions is the same for both respect and loyalty. If you come to me and show me that you can't be trusted, then I have no loyalty for you. But if you come to me and show me that you're a trustworthy person and that you're a person who shows allegiance to either me or the things that I believe in, then I'm much more likely to be loyal to you than I am to somebody who doesn't show me those things. I think that earning that respect and earning loyalty is more than just being honest and, I don't know, I guess, upfront. It's, it's somebody who's like really providing value that somebody feels obligated to reciprocate at some point. You can add value to somebody's life and still be a piece of shit to them. Maybe. I mean, there's a net sum of value, though. Right? You, you, you can add value and you can subtract value. And then you have to decide if there's enough of a net positive to remain loyal to that person. I don't believe in net positives. You're either a positive or a negative. I don't know. I mean, but that's that's all kind of like saying everybody has to be perfect in every... No, but if you're 52% positive and 48% negative, you're a net negative to me. Well, maybe, but... I mean, that's just because you're kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm a huge pain in the ass, but there's a Oh, reason. not you. Not you. I'm saying like that person that makes you do that mental gymnastics to figure out if they're like worthy or not. Like that's almost the, like too much trouble at that point. Exactly. That is what I'm getting at with loyalty, with respect. Respect's the easiest one to kind of define, right? Like in our interactions, right? If I interact with you, say every day, say we work together, right? And I interact with you every day. We kind of do. On Mondays, you speak to me in a respectful manner. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you're an asshole. I'm, you should hear the way I'm I talk to LC when you're not all listening. <laughs> I'm not going to respect you if you treat me that way. So. Yeah, but there's a ledger. There's a ledger of value. I suppose. 
I don't feel like you need to bring an overwhelming amount of value to my life in order for me to respect well, you or be loyal to you. I can respect you time, and be loyal to you without having you as a regular fixture in my life. And that's what I meant when I said yeah. somebody who wants to be a regular fixture in my life needs to add some kind of value to my life. I think that that net positive value is obvious though, right? In, in most cases, you're not going to need to think about it. You're not going to need to calculate. It's just obvious. So there's like political parties where people say, well, I'm willing to shoot myself and my family in the foot and impoverish us for the greater good. I, I think that that's almost a delusional take if the system that you're voting for didn't provide that value for you in the first place. Yeah, and it's a dishonest take on the part of the person who's saying it. I think so, or at least not a well-reasoned one. If you have an employer or employee relationship, like a lot of employers rely on non-compete clauses to keep employees from, you know, running away. But really that relationship should just be, it should just be obvious that the employee is worth, you know, maintaining because they're giving value and the employer is worth sticking with because they're providing you a good employment. What's so, his name there that owns Virgin Mobile? Richard Branson? Yeah. He has the best quote on that when it comes okay. to business. I'm going to butcher it, but it goes something like customers first isn't the way to look at it. My employees come first. There'll always be more customers, but if I treat my employees like shit, I'll have nobody to serve those customers. That's right. The customers benefit when your employees are doing well and the morale is high. It's, it's good for them. It's a successful business. That's I've one of my arguments. I've never worked at any company where every single worker was disgruntled and the company just did really good. Hmm. That's when one of my main arguments for the whole medical system stuff is that I think that the medical staff and the doctors almost have to put themselves first so that they can then help others. And, and that sounds like really selfish, but I think that's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I don't agree with hourly work. I don't think hourly work could exist. I don't think any employee should be a hourly employee. There is zero incentive to continually do better in your job when you're an hourly employee. I don't care about raise schedules, any of that shit. There's zero incentive to be an exemplary employee when you already know what your paycheck's going to look like at the end of the week. That's speaking from my experience. Every time I've worked in an incentive-based job, I've been a far better employee. If my boss came to me and said, hey, if we get this house, we finish framing this house by the end of tomorrow and you're going to get an extra 200 bucks at the end of the week. Everybody is willing to show up at 5 a.m. and work till pitch black because they want that. Whereas if those same guys, you say to them, hey, look, I'm going to pay you 25 bucks an hour. And if you do real good in six months, uh, I'll give you a dollar raise. Those guys aren't showing up early and working late. Some of them might but a far less percentage of, as compared to a crew that is based on incentive, right? That's why you have car salesmen that do so well, right? Because they get paid for every single transaction that they make. All these guys that are, in, are make, on a commission-based job are these crazy top performers, right? Finance guys, mortgage guys. All these guys are crazy top performers because they know the better they perform, the more money they're going to make. That's why you have the guy at the nine to five that doesn't give a fuck about his job and you can't get shit for customer service anywhere you go.
it's hard to measure those incentives sometimes like in complicated systems in medicine, we have something called accountable care organizations and accountable care is like code for, we're going to check the quality of your work and only pay you if you're doing a good job, but they always mess up how to measure that. But yeah, but I, right. I would agree that there's probably checks and ba- check and balance issues. You're right in that. Yeah. Doctors who just make what they do tend to be better producers, I guess. You're a better producer when you're incentivized to produce. And the system that we currently live in, majority of the system, which is the hourly wage system, is from a time when an hourly wage, the incentive was you had a job. Because jobs weren't a dime a dozen. There weren't a gazillion businesses between here and 20 minutes everywhere around you where you could just walk out and put in an application at 30 different businesses in a day and you knew you were going to get a call. That's the world we live in today, right? Where you can no longer hold that job over somebody's head as the incentive for them to do a good job, right? When you have a, a job market where the jobs available outweigh the people that are willing to work them, you have to shift to an incentive-based system if you want to retain a decent workforce. But I think that neither side should feel loyalty. They should just stay in that deal as long as the deal is working out for them. Which is what I think loyalty is. Right. I think ultimately it is. Loyalty is you showing allegiance to something because it benefits you right? And it benefiting you is how you interpret that as them being loyal to you, if that makes sense. I think that people who rely on loyalty really put themselves at risk of getting rug pulled. Yeah. You should be careful who you're loyal to, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Now, in the employer-employee relationship, I think that value has to kind of favor the employer a little bit because they're the ones taking all the risk to set up the system. Obviously. That's why commission is 2%. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about setting up a commission system where you're making, you know, I want 33% of every transaction I'm a part of. That's obviously ridiculous. But if yeah. you take your average employee, I watched my wife implement it in the job that she runs, right? She had people that were working an hourly wage. There was five or six of them in the same department and they handled digital leads in a, in a car dealership. And everybody just kind of fucked off on their job because they didn't make shit for money hourly. But then they instituted a system where the person that processed the most leads every month or the most successful leads that led to a deal in a month got a bonus. So now you had these same people who didn't give a shit about their job are actually reaching out to customers and following up with customers because they have an iron in the fire when it comes to this deal being finished. We're really in a, what have you done for me lately kind of environment. Absolutely. And I think as an employer, you need to shift with the environment. If you don't, you're just not going to find employees. Yeah. I've tossed the idea around for years with what I do for a living. And me and my father butt heads on this, that he's always paid people by the hour and he likes to pay people by the hour. And, you know, my argument is the exact argument I've laid out here. And I think we should pay the guys that work for us by the foot, how many feet they drill in a day. They get paid X amount for every foot they drill. They're much more likely to stay late and show up early 
and try to get the job done faster than they are if they know exactly what their paycheck's going to be at the end of the week. And if you're a smart businessman, you can turn around and say, I'm paying them, say, $10 a foot. I'm just going to tack on an extra $5 a foot what I'm charging the customer. And, you know, less is coming out of my pocket at the end of the week than was when I was paying them weekly. There's got to be some kind of a check on that to make sure that quality is assured too. Yeah, obviously. And people just through it and like the whole doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to have a successful business, incentive-based work is definitely the way to go. You're going to end up with a much higher quality workforce in the end than uh, just simply paying people by the hour. Simple benefits packages and stuff don't incentivize people the way they once did. Nobody gives a shit if you contribute to their 401k because they've watched the market go to shit. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've got a good handle on loyalty. <laughs> so we're at about our 90 minute mark. Is there anything you want to add this week? Um, yeah, there was one thing I wanted to add. A gentleman by the name of Lavin Smith. A stupid name. For a stupid person. I haven't been able to find a Twitter handle for him, but this uh, fine upstanding gentleman decided that he was going to go on to Ungovernable Misfits website and plagiarize Barn Miner's article that he wrote about uh, how to underclock a what's miner on factory firmware. I think he has about 30 articles that are attributed to him. Pretty sure that it's a pattern of behavior. You have somebody that's willing to go on and plagiarize somebody else's work and then not give them credit for it. They've probably done it before. If he happens to hear this some way, just know that uh, you have, in fact, poked the hornet's nest. And uh, there are quite a few people that are quite fond of Barn Miner. Shout out to Barn Miner. He is the original author of How to Underclock Your What's Miner. If you don't follow him, on Twitter, go on and give him a, a follow on Twitter. I think his handle is BTC Twatterpants, which it is. Uh, fucking awesome handle for Twitter. That's like putting <laughs> tattoos on your face. <laughs> go on and give him a follow. Uh, he's a solid pleb. He does some cool mining stuff. Good guy to know. He's got some good knowledge and my interactions with him. Uh, have showed me that he's willing to take the time to help out somebody who, uh, you know, may have mining questions um, or at least point in the direction of somebody who knows if he doesn't. So uh, go on and give him a follow. And he posted in the thread that we posted about giving people credit for their work. He posted his original article. So go on and give that a like, give it a read, support the plebs that are putting out the actual content, not the scammers that are trying to rip them off for a profit. This Lavin Smith, is he monetizing these articles that he plagiarizes? I haven't quite been able to figure that out, but my assumption would be that he is only because that particular article is up on buywhatsminer.com. Um, and I don't think somebody goes through the effort of plagiarizing somebody else's work for no gain at all, uh, especially when it doesn't seem that he has a Twitter, or at least not underneath his pen name. Somebody who is plagiarizing strictly for clout would be flaunting that they were plagiarizing strictly for clout. 
It's so. sketchy if you don't have a Twitter. It's like your Minnesota hodl or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I said, Barn Miner posted a link to his original article. If you can't find it on Twitter, it is on ungovernablemisfits.com. He has it up on there. Give him a like, give him a follow. Solid dudes over there. Everybody that contributes to that website. Yeah, that was really the only point that I wanted to add. Kind of happened right before the podcast. Had to take a couple, uh, get my cheese centered before I came on because I really wanted to come on and just freak out about it. But That's why you were late to the podcast after I was late to the podcast. Correct. So fuck Lavin Smith. And uh, I believe that Barn Miner was featured on this week's Plebs of the Underground segment. Yes, he was. He was. He actively supports the podcast. So uh, big shout out to him. He also is the one that sent me shirts and stickers. Big shout out to him. And I just want to say, because I'm never done saying, he also sent me a handwritten letter with it. There's something to be said for a handwritten letter. You don't see him much anymore. Both he sent me one, and I got some stickers from John from um, Bit by Bit Podcast. And he also sent me a handwritten letter with it. I don't trust people that send handwritten letters. That's foolish. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody takes the time to sit down and actually handwrite something out in today's day and age rather than just sending you a message on an app, That fucking means something to me. That's the same idea as going and meeting the person you're buying something from and shaking their hand or doing a business deal with somebody and shaking their hand. Same idea in my book. Copernicus is just mad because I shit on Lord of the Rings. He's a (laughs) hobbit fucker, that guy. It's good to hear that he's working at Simply now, though. Congratulations on that. That's a good break. Yeah, congratulations. It's big time. It is. It is. I I really want to throw out a congratulations, you know? I couldn't think of anybody better for the job. Yeah, seriously, good job. All right, brother. As always, I appreciate the uh, the time and your over-preparedness, which <laughs> somehow sort of outweighs my complete ineptitude. I was lacking on the movie take this week. I'll come back strong next week. Yeah, well, you got to watch Snatch this week. Why don't we do this? Because mm-hmm. this will hold you accountable if we say it in front of the people that listen. Ah, oh, shit. Uh, you listen to it this week and then come back with your take on it. You mean watch the movie? I think this may be the way we're going to do the movie section from now on. We're going to bring up a movie that hopefully the other one hasn't seen. Okay. And then the other person's got to watch it and bring their take on it. We'll see if we uh, fall as far apart on that as we seem to on some other subjects. Yeah, At the bare minimum, I'll know if your movie selection is shit like your kimono selection. Yeah, my kimono's sweet. You're just jealous. <laughs> and by the way, that wasn't me just shitting my pants. My neighbor's sprinklers just went on. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That wasn't me shitting my pants. Anyway, I got to go. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> got to go clean up now. I told you, just make sure you wear your brown pants like I do. You'd be all set. All right, dude. Well, have a good night, and uh, thanks for the chat. Adios, amigo. Till next week. Peace. Peace. See my old friend I've come to talk with you again 
Even though words can be deceiving, our voice is undeniably pleasing. And this podcast that is streaming to your brain, just like cocaine, come and hear why bitch. Coin fixes this. On Bitcoin Twitter, you walked alone. Wasted hours staring at your phone. A net positive is no defense. Miami shitcoin conference. LC and I. We are savants, the cool plebs listen to the blue collar podcast. On the podcast website I saw, 200 downloads, maybe more, people searching for real signals. Jokes out there, but at least we'll make you giggle. I'll see you meditating in the shower about the show. Picture it free to listen or don't go fuck yourselves. Be advised. We are not certified fiat system financial experts. Our financial opinions are our own and should not in any way be construed to be financial advice. Do your own research. Also, while we believe in free speech, we do recognize that we do not live in a free speech society. Therefore, for all intents and purposes, please consider our views to be fictional satire with the sole intention of facilitating broad discussion that is necessary to generate new understandings in hopes of uniting people under common rule sets rather than the current trend of dividing people by utilizing different rule sets for different people. Listener discretion is advised.